I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when you could live in the East Village on a part-time waiter's salary and still afford to go clubbing, when sushi restaurants had smoking sections and MTV was commercial-free, when you could rub shoulders with A-listers but still have no place to post it. I am your narrator, David Klein, and I am The Fly. In this episode, the 1997 Video Music Awards ended eight hours ago. So what am I doing in a limousine with Courtney Love? And where the hell are we going? Don't you hate it when you have, like, 50 wands? Gwyneth Paltrow is perched swan-like on the edge of a glove-soft leather sofa. Only the faintest wisp of annoyance shows upon her silken brow as she surveys the contents of her purse, which she's just emptied onto the surface of my cousin's coffee table. There isn't much to say about the coffee table, other than, like every other item in the apartment, it's extremely tasteful. But, 20 years later, when asked about whether she found the original script for Shakespeare in Love on this very piece of furniture, Gwyneth will call that an urban myth. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Tonight is the MTV Video Music Awards show at Radio City Music Hall, hosted by Chris Rock, and there will be parties. We're sitting in a sun-drenched, ground-floor apartment on Gramercy Park North that Gwyneth and my cousin Noni have been sharing lately. As the cousin who sometimes comes by to hang, I've met Gwyneth before, and she's pretty easy to be around, all in all. Gramercy Park is in the top tier of New York City's most exclusive neighborhoods. Centered around its namesake green space, it's accessible only to the precious few via a very special key. Not that Noni will ever use her key, but I guess I could borrow it and go sit there by myself and do a crossword puzzle. Why would two A-list 20-something actors decide to room together like normal people when they could live luxuriously all on their own? Maybe it's because they understand each other's reality. When you're the central figure in an ongoing enterprise in which your agent, publicists, media companies, fans, stalkers, and moviegoers all have a stake in your career success, it's a comfort to find someone who can relate to all that pressure. At 26, Noni is a year older and the more established star. But Gwyneth's been a big name since Seven and Brad Pitt, and last year she earned raves for Emma. Noni and Gwyneth are accustomed to being tabloid fodder. Both have been engaged to Hollywood hunks, and both are in the midst of a non-working summer stretch. Winona's last movie, Woody Allen's Celebrity, finished shooting in April, as did Gwyneth's Sliding Doors. So now they're taking meetings, reading scripts, and plotting their next moves. You know that phenomenon you see when girls are extremely comfortable together? There's a tactility you rarely see in your guys, and they have it. They're like sisters. Making a dual entrance at parties and premieres, they'll sometimes hold hands. Do I feel a little ungainly in the presence of such star wattage? Perhaps. But I'm along for the ride. This is going to be fun. What do we think about Skysby's shirt, Noni says? Gwyneth looks over my duds, coldly, offering a flaxen nod of disapproval. Maybe there's a soupçon of empathy, not unlike the immortal frown she'll later give Tom Ripley, who, God bless him, just wasn't born into all this grandeur. 
Noni turns to her young friend from the West Coast and asks if it would be okay if I wore the shirt he currently has on. Nathaniel, we'll call him Nathaniel, is handsome and slim and doesn't seem the least bit put out being asked to hand over his shirt to a guy he just met. Like this isn't the first time he's been asked to part with something precious to avert a fashion disaster in the making. Not a problem, he sings, as long as you don't mind it being a little snub. I am being given a gorgeous, slightly warm, but not at all damp men's shirt by Prada, jet black. But wow, this one stings. I was totally ready to wear what I'd picked out. A dark, slinky-fitting, psychedelic patterned dress shirt with long cuffs that slipped past my wrists and made me feel vaguely like a rock star. Worse, taking the shirt off another person's back has an ancient, damning implication, and there is a price to be paid. Inhabiting the discarded shell of a hermit crab with washboard abs in front of Brad Pitt's ex is arguably worse than being booed by Led Zeppelin, my other peak moment of celebrity humiliation. As various outfits are tried on, a CD of Fleetwood Mac's rumors plays on repeat. Noni's been on a major Fleetwood Mac kick since becoming pals with Stevie Nicks. Now it's pretty much all she wants to hear. I haven't made her a tape in some time, because as much as it pains me, she no longer needs my help. And my status as resident music expert is on even shakier ground since I confess to having a soft spot for Paula Cole's I Don't Wanna Wait. Still a few years shy of finding cultural ubiquity as the theme song for the teen soap opera, Dawson's Creek. Rumors is finally quashed, and MTV is turned on. Live from Radio City Music Hall in New York City. The 1997 MTV Video Music Awards. And sure enough, the Paula video comes on. Noni alerts Gwyneth. This is the one Skysby has a crush on. And they both have a little chuckle. It's not that I have a crush on Paula Cole. It's just that the truth is even worse. I discovered the song on my monthly CMJ compilation just as I'd been dumped by someone I'd fallen hard for. And Paula's throaty lament was the perfect sad listen to soundtrack my po-faced desperation. Better to be taken for a sensitive guy crushing on a gal who wants to know where all the cowboys have gone. I'm ready to loosen up a little, but Noni's neither a drinker or much of a recreational drug user. I see her as shul as almost an act of rebellion. She once confessed to me that her parents were getting after her to take mushrooms and see Koyana Skatsi, the time-lapse Philip Glass-scored art house hit. The world's most permissive parents were finally putting their foot down. They were practically insisting. Skysby, she had moaned. I'm going to get grounded unless I trip. Beck and Jamiroquai rack up several awards each. Fiona Apple. This world is both. And you shouldn't model your life. Wait a second. You shouldn't model your life about what you think that we think is cool and what we're wearing and what we're saying and everything. Go with yourself. Go with yourself. Spice Girls and no doubt top key categories. Sting and Puff Daddy deliver an earnest tribute to Biggie Smalls. Can't believe this shit. Can't believe you ain't here. 
and Madonna delivers an earnest tribute to Princess Diana. It's time for us to take responsibility for our own insatiable need to run after gossip and scandals and lies and rumors. There's not a ton of raucousness. Dutifully wafting an unmemorable single called Please, U2 is notably stripped down. Bono, devoid of eyewear and wearing a dark hoodie, looks a little like a junior Sith Lord. Despite having lost out to Aerosmith for best rock video, Marilyn Manson delivers the performance of the night. The Beautiful People is riveting theater, an electroconvulsive Nuremberg rally with butt cheeks that leaves the audience with ears ringing and minds freshly assaulted. Finally, at a leisurely pace, properly attired, we file into a hired car, spacious but not a limo, and head uptown to the Four Seasons Hotel, just a quick ride from Radio City where the awards took place. Last year, Gwyneth had been a presenter and made a splash in a red velvet Gucci suit. Tonight, Gwyneth is cash. We ascend the marble steps leading to the bar, sumptuously lit in tones of deep red and gold. Noni and I find Bono at the marble bar, and like the band's performance a few hours ago, he's pretty stripped down himself. There's some strain in his eyes. He and the boys have just flown from Europe for that one song. Five years ago at Yankee Stadium, when I first met him, U2 was on top of the world. Now the band is supporting a supremely ill-advised venture into drum and bass, and mired in the much maligned Pop Mart tour. Worse, the musical worm has turned. A pale Scientologist named Beck, whose wry genre dabbling and easy hip-hop fluency seems granted at birth, is all the rage. U2 spent millions commissioning a 100-foot golden arch, erecting a shimmering, techno-fantastic lemon which malfunctioned more than once, trapping the band inside, and dragging the world's largest LED screen across every major sports arena in America looking for a way into the 90s zeitgeist. And as it turns out, two turntables and a microphone are... Where's that? Bono is gracious despite the circumstances. No rock star amnesia here. On the other hand, I get the distinct impression Dave Grohl will forget me in seconds. I don't hold that against Dave's lovely mother, Virginia Hanlon Grohl, with whom I yammer ever long while Noni and Dave engage in cozy, beautiful people conspiracy. Virginia, who will go on to write the essential rock mom book, From Cradle to Stage, is a teacher, so the conversation flows easily. But chatting about progressive education to the mother of the drummer for Nirvana, while no doubt a nifty thing to be doing, still has me feeling like a bit of a heel, rhapsodizing on the smell of Crayola crayons while surveying the room for talent over Virginia's shoulder. Around here is where Courtney Love's friend's friend who has an extra hit of ecstasy comes into view. We find each other through mutual need. When you're in that nobody special category, you need companionship and conversation. Announcing my first cousin status always makes for a good beginning. 
And I've got another plausibly interesting sounding job, this time at Muse, spelled with a Z, which provides digital entertainment content to businesses in the music, books, video sphere. And what a vast sphere it is. Green Eggs and Ham, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, the latest in dark ambient, Muse has you covered. And they make those kiosks you see at Tower Records where you can actually listen to a sample of a record before you buy it. 90s, baby. I'm in metadata now. Doesn't that sound proper? Noni catches my eye. We're moving to a new location. A group of us, Ms. Grohl and Son and various posse members included, fill up a private elevator and we ride in our finery to the penthouse suite. We climb to the 52nd floor pinnacle and step into a vast nine-room space designed by legendary edifice builder I.M. Pei. It's bordered by floor-to-ceiling windows, offering a 360-degree view of glittering Gotham. If the previous party was your basic booze and schmooze with industry types and big-name stars and their parents, I chatted with Beck's mom as well. The action up in the suite is like the hip kids table. In one room, Leo DiCaprio lounges on a bed with a few friends. David Blaine is pulling cards from places cards don't usually come from. The Counting Crows guy, or somebody who looks a lot like him, is holding court in another room. Noni and Dave don't mingle. They hang back, discussing. In short order, she lets me know they're leaving. I'm on my own now. Loosened by drinks, legitimized by Prada, the rising e-pill whispering sweet nothings in my cortex. Ordinary movements, breathing, arm rotations, uttering words, gnawing gently on my lower lip, all starts to feel languorous and delectable. We lean in closer now, the warmth of skin meeting skin just in the mere brushing or touching of an arm or a shoulder is exquisite. It's not pure horniness, really. E is a relationship drug and it renders you truly sensitive to other people, even more than you would ordinarily be. Just then, as I'm starting to tingle like a plucked guitar string, Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve comes on, big over the very fine club-worthy audio system. Released earlier in the summer, Bittersweet Symphony has suddenly gotten very big, abetted by the nervy video where singer Richard Ashcroft tramps down the street in a single take singing the song and knocking into people and not giving a single shit. That fanfare of orchestral strings acts as some kind of a signal. On cue, and with undeniable charm, Courtney Love and Billy Corgan start waltzing. A beat or two later, the rest of the room joins in, ballroom dancing with playful formality with the whole of New York as our backdrop. As a kid, I experienced some real trauma when a serious eye injury threatened the sight in my right eye. These days, it's my roving eye, a completely unrelated condition, that does me the most damage. Surely it's to blame for my presence, hours later, in a limo, with Courtney Love, Edward Norton, Courtney Love's friend who was some kind of model, and Courtney Love's friend's friend who had an extra hit of ecstasy roughly three and a half hours ago. Still, I tell myself something interesting. 
Material for a short story, perhaps. It might be just around the corner. Or, more accurately, through a hotel lobby and accessible via elevator. Despite the frazzled state of my synapses, I'm lucid enough to wonder just what the hell Edward is doing with Courtney. Fresh from his breakout performance in Primal Fear, Ed is one of the hottest young actors on the planet. After spending a handful of moments with Courtney in the course of the evening, I firmly believe she's not the most well person. Sure, in the two years since she chucked a makeup compact at Madonna, she'd gotten sober to secure a role in The People vs. Larry Flint, and earned an Oscar nomination, a massive career boost, and the veneer of respectability as a result. But tonight I've had a peek behind the facade. Edward, meanwhile, is calm, bright, very good at acting, and obviously not an attention whore. Maybe being nominated for Best Supporting Actor brings disparate people together in some magical way. It happened with Billy Bob and Angelina, right? Picking up the rear behind Courtney and company, I am mildly disgusted with myself for having sweated through the beautiful garment I'd been loaned by Bobby Cheekbones in the presence of Gwyneth hours earlier. But waltzing in tight-fitting fabric will do that, especially combined with an e-pill. Perhaps the opium den-like setting where I hope we're heading has a dry cleaners. Courtney stops at the end of the corridor and raps on the door. I have to clarify something. All of the foregoing, everything, even the stuff about Jimi Hendrix and Robert Plant and Marissa Tomei and Miss B and my eye injury and Jethro Tull showing me his nuts, it all ran through my mind just exactly as I've explained it to you thus far, in the long minute it took for the door to swing open, like in an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Hey, come on in says Twiggy Ramirez. Shirtless, a fur cap perched upon his head, the bass player in Marilyn Manson's band clutches a white bath towel at his waist and ushers the ladies in, leaving a heady tailwind of baby powder in his wake. It's just me and Edward Norton bringing up the rear now, and he can easily keep on walking, but God bless him, he stops and turns to me and says in a low voice, Don't worry, man. Nobody else has any idea what the hell they're doing here either. Bolstered, Strengthened, even, by his assurance, his man, I follow him into the main room. Marilyn Manson and a striking blonde-dressed woman occupy a deluxe-sized bed under a quilt strewn with glossy magazines. Propped up on pillows, they wear matching white hotel robes. The woman looks like Cicciolina, the Hungarian-Italian former porn star, politician, and singer born Ilona Staller, who is Jeff Koons' girlfriend, so I'm pretty sure it isn't her. Edward greets the couple with a few pleasantries I can't quite make out, and then I approach the bed and introduce myself to the man who, hours ago, had proclaimed to an audience of millions, My fellow Americans, we will no longer be oppressed by the fascism of Christianity, and we will no longer be oppressed by the fascism of beauty. Because I see you all sitting out there trying your hardest not to be ugly, trying your hardest not to fit in, trying your hardest to earn your way into heaven. But let me ask you, do you want to be in a place that's filled with a bunch of assholes? Gazing up at me with a mild expression, as if entertaining visitors at bedside were an everyday occurrence, he extends his hand and we exchange a gentle six-in-the-morning shake. Without makeup, he's actually less pale than with. 
Manson, he says. Courtney perches at the foot of the bed, engaging our hosts, while Ed relaxes in an easy chair. Crouched on the carpet next to Manson's side of the bed, Twiggy adjusts a small portable record player to an unhearable level. Because the drugs don't work, and we all feel like a scared hamster, and daylight, audible volume, and human touch register as an assault upon the body, mind, and soul. As Manson reads aloud from a recent write-up in New York Rocker, the rest of us are arrayed on an adjacent bed, avoiding touching. The British magazine Kerrang! said that a girl from Australia tried to commit suicide because she was too young to be at one of your concerts, Manson intones in a sober interviewer voice. Then, continuing as himself, That's the first time I've heard the story, but if it's true, someone should have given her a ticket for the show. Chuckles are dutifully rendered, then the bed conversation turns quieter. Twiggy lowers the music even more, and some perverse mechanism within me decrees that it's my turn to speak. So, I begin, addressing Courtney Love's friend, acutely aware that even now I can still call this idea off, but I don't. So, fashion model? I smell sex and My words clang through the sclerotic silence. I'm pretty sure Manson has detected the weirdness and looked up from his magazine. No, she snaps. I'm a secretary, spitting out the final word like a poison dart. She's being sarcastic, of course. There's no greater hell on earth than being a secretary, and I should know. The moment spreads its tendrils, and paralysis suffuses the room. Mentally addressing the splayed creature that is me, I exhort myself into action via simple mental instructions. In 20 seconds, you will rise to your feet, you will say it was extremely nice meeting you all, you will place one foot in front of the other, that kind of thing. Not exactly revelatory thinking, but I'm pleased with my brain for coming up with a viable plan. When I close the door behind me, I manage to fast walk for a few steps, but soon I'm galloping for all I'm worth. Half out of relief, but also practicality. I have work today, an office temp job, which is just another way of saying secretary, and I have about an hour to get there on time. Eva Passaretti, an administrative resource manager in MetLife's HR department, could not care less about who I've been hobnobbing with. At my apartment, I ditch the sweaty Prada, feed the cat, dose myself with ibuprofen, visine, and coffee, find my cleanest shirt, and then grab a cab. I'll be virtually on time, although my first hour will go to paying the cabbie. I show up, flop sweating, wincing at the negative pings in my skull and the fluorescent lighting. Eva greets me with a withering look and a stale exhalation of disapproval. I follow her to a conference room where a stack of paper the size of a small child is piled on a handsome conference room table. Okay, here's what you do. Sort the cases out by file, then put the active cases in one pile and the pending cases in the other. 
You can tell if the case is active by the red stamp that says active. Got it? Got it. Good. And don't be making phone calls. This is a conference room, you know. You can't just be making phone calls in here. The files turn out to be disputed life insurance claims, mostly drug and alcohol-related fatalities involving cars and other heavy machinery. In other words, stellar reading material. I'm especially spellbound by a case involving a military wife, her deep-sea diving ex-military husband, and autoerotic asphyxiation. MetLife, which refuses to pay the policy, deems his demise death by misadventure. Is that a sick epitaph or what? His wife argues to the contrary, that her husband was an otherwise careful, health-minded person, a buckler of seatbelts, an avoider of drink and drugs, an inveterate gym-goer, someone who wanted to keep on living, in other words. The man, an experienced freediver, had simply made a fatal miscalculation. This was not death by misadventure, but rather a tragic accident. Fascinating stuff, and great short story material. Despite the brain pops and the unpleasant memory of all the squishy, sensitive feelings I expressed last night, not to mention the Manson Hotel debacle, these authentic tales of human foibles, tragic occurrences, and corporate intransigence have me feeling like myself again. Unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed, yet with a trace of spring in my step as I pause for my sorting work and head to the men's. Crouched at the base of a wall of file cabinets with a label maker at her feet, very much in troll guarding the bridge mode, is Eva Passaretti. Joints popping, she assumes an upright posture, and I take a step back, reflexively. Need something? Oh, do I need to show you a hall pass or something? Don't get loud with me, guy. Who's getting loud? She shakes her head wearily. You have a bad attitude. I could see that from the very start. You see a lot, Dr. Lecter, I say, channeling Jodie Foster. But are you strong enough to point that high-powered perception at yourself? That's it, she says. Pack up your gear. Gladly. I'll just need your John Hancock on this, I say, retrieving my timesheet from my blazer pocket. She snatches the sheet and scrutinizes it. I'm kind of sad, though, I say. I felt we were... Como se dice en español? Simpatico? No, that's not right. Simpatico? You were not in at 9 a.m. this morning, she says, snatching a pencil stub from behind her ear, changing my 9 o'clock to 9.15, and initialing her correction with a flourish worthy of Zorro. She then beelines to a nearby fax machine and faxes the sheet through to my temp agency, the number of which is programmed on autodial for precisely this type of shenanigan. As she leans over the machine, watching the paper go through, I assure Eva that I know she's just doing her job. And besides, an extra quarter hour of my salary might have a potentially devastating effect on the company's bottom line. I mean, $6.33 here, $6.33 there. Pretty soon, it starts to add up to real money. That's not the point. And that's the sad thing with you. You'll go through your whole life thinking you're the one who's being wrong, but your attitude is what's wrong, not the actions of hardworking people. Well, I may be morally bankrupt, but at least I floss regularly. Janine, call security. She barks to the firm's newly hired junior associate account executive. Janine wears an ill-fitting brownish business suit and a mild expression unclouded by awareness of the soul-crushing corporate drudgery that lies in store. Call security, Eva repeats. Janine doesn't, though. She looks at me and she says, Maybe you should just go. Maybe you should just go. 
I can barely suppress the urge to lean down and kiss her slightly damp forehead and gently push away the strand of stray hair that's plastered slantwise across it. I want the world to go all foggy and soft focus and the music to swell and I want to fluff up her hair and take her glasses off and say, you see, I always knew you was pretty. Instead, summoning my best Veronica Sawyer and Heathers, I tell Janine, you're beautiful. Happiness, more or less, it's just a change in me, something in my liberty. And there you have it. Season two of I Am The Fly is now concluded. In the third and final season, we'll continue to make our way toward the end of the century in search of a safe place to land. First stop will be Rio, and yes, there will be celebrities. I'd like to thank Nathan Klein for his outstanding voice work on Marilyn Manson, Daniel Klein for technical assistance and gadget selection, Allison Rabel for everything, but also her elegant portrayal of my office nemesis in this last episode. Thanks to Jeff Klingman for editorial inspiration, to Eric Sabo for synergistic support, Jerry Courtley for much-needed technical advice as well as the I Am The Fly logo, Nina Dietrich for PR consultation, and finally, thanks to all of those who have listened. Both of you. I'm kidding. See you next season. <laughs>